Thank you very much. Um, I'm delighted, honoured, so many people have come to, to hear this lecture. Um, I, I very much hope uh, you enjoy it and get something out of it. Um, and uh, of course, I'm, we're all very grateful to uh, the, the ECI and the Smith School in particular for hosting this event. Um, and uh, crucially, that means providing free drink afterwards. So I know why most people are, are here to guarantee a good turnout. Um, and uh, uh, but, but I'm, uh, of course, um, particularly uh, should start off by thanking uh, the uh, School of Geography and the Environment uh, and the Department of Physics, um, School of Geography and the Environment for giving me the opportunity uh, to, to talk to you today uh, as they're, they're for entrusting me with one of their statutory chairs. I have to try not to break it, I suppose. Um, and, uh, and the Department of Physics for having shepherded me uh, this far and also uh, continue, allowing me to continue my uh, involvement in the department uh, as, as we go forwards. Um, I uh, am joining in a sort of inaugural lecture like this. I gather it's customary to start off with um, a sort of bit of an autobiographical spin on, on why I got to where I am. Uh, an awful lot of people here looking around the room know me anyway, so I think I'll spare you that embarrassment. Um, but I, I will make one little um, comment on the, along those lines, uh, because I'm joining a department where I've discovered unnervingly um, that uh, the researcher is often the subject of investigation, as well as um, the thing the researcher is investigating. Um, and uh, I always find it rather unnerving talking to, to Sarah Watmore, um, that knowing, am I, am I really talking to her or is she just analyzing who I am, so to speak, or what I'm doing? Um, and uh, so, um, I'm going to struggle with this. Anyway, um, so the, the, uh, uh, the reason I, I thought I should therefore start off with a, a declaration, uh, which pr I thought would prompt a, a theme for this lecture, um, is that, uh, as many of you know, um, mine's the second career in our family. Um, my wife Irene got her statutory chair a few years ago, and uh, partly as a result, I have the privilege of meeting our kids at three o'clock uh, every afternoon at the primary school gates. And it's very striking how working on climate change and big planetary environmental problems um, doesn't fit in with my role as a, a parent in a North Oxford primary school. And, and that's kind of what the title of the lecture is all about. Uh, when I, it, it's, a, it's a classic North Oxford primary school. People are concerned about the environment. People, um, several parents are here, I have to say, and, and they sort of ask me politely what I do, and they're interested. Oh, yeah, it's climate change. And, and, uh, and they're concerned about it. They, several have solar panels on their roofs and so on. Um, and we, we talk about it, and then we move on and talk about other things. And then I go to conferences, and people talk about, you know, the, is it a 10% or a 2% probability of um, a thermohaline shutdown affecting the climate of Europe in uh, 50 to 100 years' time, and it just doesn't connect up at all. And it's this disconnect uh, between what we do as climate scientists and, indeed, what politicians do with our climate science. So it's this um, sort of triangle we have to try and reconnect uh, that I'm uh, thinking about in this inaugural lecture. We've got the sort of stuff we do as climate scientists, making these projections of the world, 
which look disturbingly predictable and wander off into the future um, at some alien date a long way away. Um, we have politicians making uh, you know, pronouncements about their commitment to avoid more than two degrees of warming and so forth um, at these uh, big international conferences. Um, and then we have reality. We have actual people at the school gates um, getting on with their lives. Um, and there's very little connection between, between these three. Now, the lack of connection between climate science and climate policy has been very heavily discussed. Um, and I've been engaged in some of those discussions and I'm enjoying uh, continued discussions um, as we go forward. Um, but it's this um, disconnect between what we do as scientists and the questions people are really interested in uh, that I want to focus on in this lecture. Because uh, one of the things I, I, one of the conclusions I guess I'll try and uh, convince you of is that if as a scientific community we've done a better job of focusing on the questions um, ordinary people really are interested in, we might not be in quite such a pickle as we're in um, as regards climate science and uh, the, the, its role in, um, uh, in policy. Um, as you probably know, the rules of the lecture are that you're not allowed to ask questions, um, and it all has to proceed in complete silence until uh, the ProVC and myself file out. Um, and so when, we, when I heard these rules, I thought that this, this, um, this is never going to work and, and it's going to be very boring for everybody, um, which is why I'm also, uh, so, so which is why we sort of introduced this format and a panel discussion afterwards. And um, I'm, of course, very grateful to the panel uh, for coming up, uh, David, Bob, Sarah, and Richard. Um, and you'll be hearing from all of them after the lecture, and that'll be an opportunity uh, for everybody There'll be roving mics, and everybody can join in and discuss uh, what, we've been, uh, what, what we've been talking about. So do, do make notes of the things you wish to disagree with, because I hope there will be plenty. Um, so uh, this is the challenge we face. And um, the, uh, the situation we're in, um, sort of being realistic about climate and about the way the climate issues evolved over the past 20 years, um, What's been achieved, I said very little there, what's been achieved in the sense of doing anything about climate change in the context of the problem as a whole is very little. An enormous amount has been achieved over the past 20 years um, in terms of understanding the problem. Um, and to some extent, I'll, I'll try and convince you in understanding how relatively simple it is, at least on the large scale. And then we can come on to how potentially complicated it might be on smaller scales. And then I'll, I'll talk about in the context of what has been achieved and the context of what needs to be achieved, um, and uh, that's the challenge we face of an eventual phase-out of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. And the problem we, we have having, you know, facing that 50 to 100-year timescale challenge um, is facing where most people's priorities lie, which is essentially present-day climate, understanding today's climate and current climate trends. Um, and most people who I talk to at the school gates are not really that interested in forecasts of the climate in 2100 or estimates of the probability of events happening uh, in their grandchildren's lifetimes, um, or even our ability to make marginally skillful multi-decade climate predictions. Um, so this is, it's, that, it's that connection that we want to try and uh, remake in this. And, and that's the sort of direction that I'm going in terms of making the link between the physics department and the School of Geography uh, as part of uh, this research. Just in terms of giving you the context of where we're at 
in terms of emissions, uh, we've been doing some work with Corinne Le Carré uh, in uh, 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 the Tyndall Center, UEA Tyndall, and uh, she has a very nice way of framing the problem of understanding how emissions are evolving, thinking from the top down in the big picture how emissions per head, emissions per person, in different parts of the, of the world are evolving. I find this a very intriguing figure. So um, there's the UK there. So that the black line is real data. That's emissions, tons of carbon per person. Okay. So you can see in the UK, and it starts in 1750 here and goes up to 2050. So the UK, we sort of peaked a few decades ago, and it's now perhaps coming down in emissions per person. Um, but you know, perhaps that's just noise. So we have to sort of consider the possibility that it, this might just be a, a noise about a stabilization. The USA has shot up faster, maybe coming down faster, or is it just noise and it's about to stabilize? Okay? So, so this is the sort of range of uncertainty in where emissions might go next, given the amount of information we've got so far. But most of these mature countries, we're seeing at least some sort of inflection, which gives you a bit of a constraint um, on what might be happening next. Um, of course, somewhere like China, you're very much um, in a very different situation. You know, we've got uh, emissions per head taking off. You can basically fit any function you like um, to this sort of curve. And you could go, you know, so, so then, of course, you've, you've got to use more information to try and put some bounds on what might happen in the future. And so Corrine's considering the possibility that China might uh, cap out at uh, an American-style cap um, of uh, six-odd tons per person per head, um, or cap out at a European-style uh, maximum of two and a half. And uh, these are sort of, the point is here is to sort of use this sort of the overall shape of the way emissions are evolving as a way of giving bounds on emissions in the future. The normal way of doing this kind of thing, by the way, is very different. It's to set up something called an integrated assessment model, which has a model of the transport sector, a model of the power sector, and so forth, and, and sort of try and model everything into the future. This is very much a, a much more sort of top-down, data-driven approach, which I, I like. I mean, it, it certainly, it's, it's certainly much closer to the sort of things we've been trying to do with climate. Um, but of course, because there's less information going in, you're, you end up with a lot of uncertainty in what comes out. However, because of the properties of CO2, which we'll come back to, um, a lot of these uncertainties, in effect, integrate out because CO2 accumulates in the climate system. And what we find is the, what matters really for the climate system is the total integrated amount of CO2 we dump in the atmosphere over all time, not the amount we dump in any given year. We'll be coming back to that theme fairly frequently. Um, and so the, um, pr the, even given these very large uh, range of possible behavior in emissions per head of population, when you multiply that by what we actually know rather with, with considerable confidence, which is actually how population is going to evolve, between now and 2050, because those, those trends, you know, there's, there's a lot of inertia in population. You can actually make projections that far ahead with a reasonable amount of confidence. Um, you end up with a relatively small range of uncertainty in accumulated carbon emissions from fossil uh, sources out in 2050, and it's in the ballpark of the upper end of the 
ranges of, of the projections of the scenarios that are out there at the moment. So the, this sort of approach points towards a future, at least over the next 40 to 50 years, where we're following the high-end scenarios of emissions. Um, and that is certainly consistent with the emissions data that's been released um, relatively recently, although, of course, you shouldn't read too much into just one or two years, but certainly the bounce back from the recession in emissions was such that most people are saying, yep, that does appear to be the sort of path we're on. So on the sort of area of uh, what's happening to global emissions, there's absolutely no sign uh, of a slowdown in fossil carbon emissions uh, at the moment. Uh, if anything, we're seeing a modest acceleration uh, in the rate of uh, uh, CO2 emission into the atmosphere. Um, what, what a lot of people are reporting as having slowed down is the climate response. You'll read a lot, um, in, uh, particularly in, in certain newspapers, but, but also on, on the internet and blog sites and so forth, about how global warming stopped in 1998. Um, if, it, if, if it were true that um, uh, more, than we ex more than we thought of the warming that occurred uh, prior to the year 2000 was a natural fluctuation, um, and if the current uh, short, relatively short period of relatively stable temperatures were to continue, that would, of course, be reassuring. It wouldn't mean that everything we've done so far is wrong, but it would mean we'd start to be able to rule out some of the upper end of the possible responses of the climate system to these rising emissions. At the moment, however, there isn't that much reassurance in what we've seen so far. Um, because we can, in fact, explain um, what's happened since 1998. That's 1998 here, this spike in temperatures. The grey here is the data, and the various colours are different authors' um, attempts at explaining what's happened in the data due to different factors affecting global temperatures over the past 50 to 100 years. This is a figure that Hara Imbus uh, here in... in, in uh, uh, maths and physics has been putting together um, as uh, part of the preparation for the next uh, IPCC assessment. And uh, what it shows is, um, is that it's possible to explain, not necessarily this is the correct explanation, but this is a possible explanation of what's happened to global temperatures over the past 50 years. And these explanations typically involve, from 1998 onwards, quite a bit of cooling due to the non-recurrence, if you like, of an extreme El Nino event such as the one we had in 1998. So we've, we haven't seen another El Nino like the one in 1998 or indeed the one uh, in 1982. Um, those, were, those were very strong El Nino events. They gave a big upward spike into the global temperature series. We haven't seen another one, so that record is, for that reason, yet to be broken. Uh, we've also seen... Uh, they, they, the El Nino occurred at a time when uh, there wasn't the, the cooling due to the early 90s volcano had largely dissipated. Um, and it also occurred at a time when solar activity was relatively high. And we've seen a little downturn in temperature due to solar activity over the past um, 10 years. So we're now at a relatively weak part of the solar cycle whereas 10 years ago, it was a little bit stronger. You're probably finding it irritating if you're at the back. Why have I got, why are these scales so big and these lines so small? Well, that's kind of the point here, is these are not big wiggles. 
Um, and they're not particularly, they're not in terms of at the school gates, these are not particularly important wiggles. They matter for scientists because, of course, if we couldn't explain what was happening um, since that time, if there was a genuine evidence of a problem with our understanding of the way the climate system was responding to those emissions, then, you know, we'd perhaps be backing off the whole projections we're making about further warming in the future. But there isn't such a problem. We can see that we can explain what's going on as a combination of these natural factors affecting climate and the anthropogenic influence estimated from these different studies. And you can see all of them agree we're seeing a, a substantial anthropogenic warming over the past, um, uh, over the past few decades. Um, and okay, one, one question is, which, which comes out of this, of course, is, um, there is an element, this is sort of explaining after the event. Things have happened, so we go out and look for reasons why they've happened. Scientists are disturbingly good at this, as Sarah will um, point out. Um, and and, and we are, we are, we're very often brilliant with hindsight. Um, and we do need to be careful about the possibility, or indeed the sort of formal statistical danger of overfitting uh, when we're trying to explain every wiggle in a time series like that. And I wouldn't suggest that we should expect to be able to explain all the wiggles in global temperature and the sort of detail that those um, studies are demonstrating. So just to convince you, though, that it isn't all just being wise after the event, I thought I'd show you one genuine prediction of global uh, mean temperature, of, of global climate, uh, made um, in a paper submitted in the last millennium. Um, and uh, this is a prediction of global temperature based on data. Back then, uh, the data available uh, was only available up until 1996, although we submitted the paper in uh, 1999. We weren't quite as good in those days at sort of gathering data together and so forth. Um, and uh, so we are now in a position uh, more than 14 years later to look at how good that forecast was of the decade following um, the point at which the forecast was made. Okay? And the reason I like the number 14 um, is there's a precedent for 14-year climate forecasts, um, and you'll notice how seriously in those days people took the climate scientist. Um, and uh, uh, if only the same were true today. Um, so the, um, the crucial point here, this was the article in question, and if I just zoom in, you'll notice they did receive it in the last millennium. Um, and I'd just like to publicly apologize to Irene. Um, for submitting a paper, and thank you for giving me the opportunity of doing so, um, and rather spoiling our Christmas that year, as I recall. Um, but um, I was kind of obsessed with getting this thing in, and it is satisfying that it went in, just from the point of view, this is, we can, we can stand up and say, hand on heart, the forecast of the next decade was completely out of sample, okay? Yes, the paper was published in 2000, we didn't fiddle with the figures, okay? So all, everything was, and so this is what happened. That was 14 years later, that's the validation, okay? Now, of course, there's an element of luck in this. It could have, it could have been, uh, basically, we were saying it could have been anywhere inside that gray curve. But the point is that the actual average temperature over the past decade was exactly what we expected it to be based on the information we had back in the 1990s. It's not that we can explain it after the event. It was, it was explained before the event. 
And this is one demonstration, of course, which I'm fond of because I played a role in it. But there's other papers out there. You can go back to what the IPCC was saying in the 1990s and say, you know, what, what would they have forecast for where we would be today? And it is remarkable how close we are to where we were predicted to be. Um, so that's sort of telling you um, that there's certainly no evidence that global warming has stopped. Uh, we do understand why the 1998 record is yet to be broken. Um, and uh, we shall, and uh, some people, in fact, argue that it, in fact, has been broken, or at least uh, uh, in is a statistical tie. Um, and emissions continue. If anything, uh, so they, they, the, the trends are uh, pointing towards an acceleration, and the climate is responding much as expected. One of the questions I get often, often get asked is, is it true that it's sort of turning out worse than we thought? My impression is the evidence is coming in, some of it, worse than we thought, some of it better. It's sort of, you know, it's not obvious that in, in, in many ways what's remarkable is that the evidence is coming in so close to what we expected. The, 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 the system is evolving in, um, in some ways surpri surprisingly simply compared to as I, at a global level. Um, Tim, Tim is frowning there. If there's any suggestion this is a simple system. Um, uh, at a global level um, on, uh, in, in response to a change in greenhouse gases. And we're not seeing any uh, imminent reductions in fossil um, CO2 emissions. So in that sort of rather depressing context, um, could we make more progress perhaps on alternatives to CO2, on other drivers of, carbon dioxide, uh, of climate than, uh, than CO2, which is something which has been proposed uh, and is, uh, will, I'm sure, receive a lot of coverage in the next couple of years. Um, there's a lot of, because we're basically not making any progress on CO2, um, this has led to a lot of enthusiasm for trying to do something about climate change by uh, reducing emissions of black carbon, so soot, from, uh, a lot of it from burning biomass in developing countries, uh, tropospheric ozone generated by photochemical uh, pollutants um, in, uh, and, uh, and many, other, uh, many other kinds of pollute pollution, and methane, of course, from agriculture and natural gas reductions. Um, I, I promised two members of the audience there'd be at least one reference to cow farts in this uh, uh, lecture, so there's one gratuitous uh, reference to a farting cow. Um, these are, we want to emphasize, bad things. Um, we agree with the UNEP report's assessment completely that it would be very good for the world and good for um, women in developing countries in particular to do something about the things that cause emissions of black carbon. Um, these things poison a lot of people in developing countries. There's a lot of very good reasons for cutting them. Unfortunately, for political reasons, um, a lot of people want to say that meeting the target of avoiding more than two degrees of warming is one of these reasons, because they've made this commitment. They made a commitment to avoid more than two degrees of warming. They want to be seen to be doing something about it, and this appears to be something easy they can do. However, um, and that they, the, the, unit, uh, the, the early drafts of the unit report, I, I, I don't know what they're going to say in the version of the report which is released tomorrow. Um, I, in fact, I didn't even know it was going to be released tomorrow until Richard told me earlier on today. Um, but in, in the um, executive summary of this report, which they released earlier this year, it contained the statement, reducing short-lived climate forcings will help keep global temperature rise below two degrees. And that's a politically very convenient thing to be able to say because we're trying to do that and we want to reduce these short-lived climate forcings. So you put the two together and it all looks very good. The only problem is it's not true. Okay, the reason it's not true is that 
these things are short-lived. They don't live, they don't survive in the atmosphere for very long, which means that emissions we make of these short-lived forcing agents today make very little difference to the risk of going over two degrees. It's a relatively obvious point, but one which um, we've been uh, in prompted by this UNEP um, document to look into, uh, and uh, Neil Bauman, one of my uh, graduate students, uh, has been working with Steve Smith um, of the uh, UK Climate Change Committee uh, on this problem. And uh, uh, what uh, the, this plot which Neil's produced um, shows how in, in one particular little model, um, the emissions in different decades impact on peak warming, okay? So what you're seeing here is the emissions we make in the 2000, in the in the 2010s would that column be? No, that would be the 2010s. Okay. So in this decade, the, the 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 emissions we pump into the atmosphere under this scenario, which is a scenario in which temperatures are expected to peak around two degrees, um, the emissions we make in this decade contribute about two-tenths of a degree to that two degrees, okay? And therefore, so if somehow magically we followed this scenario but we just didn't emit anything this decade, okay, then the peak would be 0.2 degrees lower, yeah? You sort of, with more or less what we're talking about here. So, so what we're saying here, this gives you an idea of which gases are most important when for peak temperatures. And notice black carbon, tropospheric ozone and methane are these quite small bars up at the top here entirely dominated by CO2, okay? They become important out in the future as you approach the peak and at a time when you virtually eliminated your CO2 emissions anyway. But the bottom line is cuts in these other gases make very little difference to your risk of dangerous climate change in the future unless you've already got CO2 under control. And I hope I've convinced you with Corinne's work, we haven't got CO2 under control. We it shouldn't pretend that we have. So um, it's a convenient fiction, but it's sadly not true. Um, the reason carbon dioxide is so important, of course, is that it's the one which builds up in the system. It's um, like a heavy metal toxin, so to speak. Um, the dose of CO2 accumulates in the climate system, unlike the others where if you cut emissions of methane within 10 to 20 years, the methane you've released into the atmosphere has um, oxidized into CO2 and therefore has much less impact on the planet than it would do uh, as methane alone. Um, the sort of uh, demonstration of this point about the fact that it's the total amount of CO2 you uh, dump in the atmosphere that matters is just illustrated by this figure here, which shows three different scenarios for future CO2 emissions on the left and the temperature response on the right. And so you've got a blue scenario which has emissions rising rapidly and then peaking suddenly in the early 2020s. Nobody's pretending these scenarios are plausible. They're just, you know, we're physicists here. We're just sort of trying out to see what happens. Um, and then plummet at 8% per year and uh, end up at a very low level by 2100. Okay, an alternate scenario here, the green one, where they start falling soon and go down at only 3% per year. But crucially, the area, this green area is the same as that one, that blue area is the same as that one, so all of these curves have the same integral. There's the same area under the curve, okay, so the same total amount of carbons released into the atmosphere, and by the time you get out to the 22nd century, the climate response is identical. 
Okay? And certainly, considering the uncertainty in the climate response, there's no, there's no, there's no perceptible difference between emitting carbon early and emitting carbon late. And there's more, it's the total amount of carbon, uh, it's the carbon, it's the total carbon, sorry, missing word there, it's the total carbon that matters. Um, and the other important point to make is there's plenty more where that came from in the sense that if we put past emissions here, I'm sorry, this has slipped slightly, that should come to about half a trillion tons. Um, if we include conventional oil and gas reserves, that takes us up to a trillion tons oil, gas, and coal. And so if you can read off from this figure basically what temperature you would expect to peak at from the total amount of carbon you put in. So you release a trillion tons, you'd expect to peak around two degrees, which is what governments are aiming to try and keep the total figure to. If you burn all conventional oil, gas, and coal, you've got plenty of carbon down there to take you up towards the four degree mark. And if you include all the shale gas reserves and so forth that people are now creatively uncovering, there's plenty of carbon there to take us into, well, territory we wouldn't want to explore with the simple climate model at least, and possibly not with the real world either. Um, so um, that's, uh, that's the, the, the situation we're in. Um, and so the, the sort of brutal reality we're facing um, is that Yes, emissions over the next few decades will determine the risk of dangerous climate change because it's all building up in the system, it's emission, and it's CO2 emissions that are doing that. But frustratingly for politicians who really want a statement from the scientists saying, um, tell us what to do now, it's emissions next year don't determine the risk of dangerous climate change. And so um, this is, again, one of the, this is the tension we face is that the kind of statement politicians want scientists to be able to make, which is, you know, you have to peak by this date, simply can't be made because it's not the way the system works. You know, you could take either of any of those three trajectories and end up with the same um, uh, climate outcome, probably a very different economic outcome, um, but uh, uh, so it's, it's simply not true to stand up and say, um, from the point of view of, uh, as, a, as an ecological imperative, emissions have to peak by a certain date. Um, how, can, how can we, as climate scientists, in this situation, how can we help um, us towards a sort of a, a lower regrets future? Um, and this brings me back to the point about these very um, abstract projections of climate over the next century, following these idealized curves of emissions and re temperature responses and so forth, um, th they're an awful long way away from anything any normal person cares about, if you like. Um, and uh, one, one question we need to ask ourselves is perhaps climate science could help more if we were to focus more on what people really care about, what, what most people get most exercised about when they're talking to me about climate, um, than uh, the uh, long-term projections uh, for 2100 and beyond. And those things are, are not what's going to happen in 100 years' time, but they're overwhelmingly what is happening now and why. So here's one example, um, you know, the 2010 uh, heat wave in Russia, um, estimated to have caused around 50,000 deaths um, and around 15 billion loss to the Russian economy. Um, the event in question was this 
massive heat wave where temperatures were up to 12 degrees above no normal over an extended period of weeks um, in uh, western central Russia. Um, and uh, Moscow was clouded in for, for, day, for weeks on end in this uh, gray haze. Um, another event which is caused very much in the public mind, the 2010 Pakistan floods. Um, a really interesting question, was it part of the same event? We don't really know that, the answer to that question yet, but it's, it's an interesting one to consider. This one caused fewer deaths, although, um, and, and happening in a poorer country, probably fewer billions uh, in terms of economic losses, but as a fraction of the wealth of that country, was equally serious. And of course, was followed up with further floods in 2011. And to get really serious, um, the 2003 floods off the Abingdon Road, which may in fact have had an impact on house prices. Um, this, all of these are weather events, and to address this, uh, the, the problem people, the, the concerns people have about weather, uh, we have to understand how climate and weather are, are linked. Um, and so the, the crucial um, little rhyme to take away with you, to remember how this link works, um, climate is what we expect. Um, that's in the, in the physicist or the statistician's sense of expectation. So it's the, the, the average you would get from many, many realizations of the system you're studying. Uh, weather is what we get in this particular realization that we live in. Uh, and then, of course, when we're studying how external factors affect climate and weather, it's climate that we affect, and weather is what gets us. It's weather that actually does damage and affects people. Um, and in making the link between uh, climate and weather, we're, we're, we're perpetually faced with the challenge illustrated beautifully by this cartoon, um, which I'll just read to you in case you can't read it at the back. So the guy on the left is saying, it's very hot today, and the guy on the right says, yes, global warming. And the guy says, ah, but it'll be cold next week. That's due to the unpredictable weather patterns caused by global warming. And then he says, if it's hot, it's global warming. If it's cold, it's proof of global warming too. And he says, yes, modern climatology is an easy science. Um, so this is the challenge we face, is that people definitely have a feeling that absolutely every weather event that happens around the world gets blamed on um, human influence on climate or gets blamed on climate change. And of course, that's not justified. Um, that's, um, and uh, uh, the, the, the science that we're really interested in, in building up um, and through this link between the School of Geography and the Department of Physics here is actually making that link uh, objective and robust so that we can say um, in, uh, quantita quantitatively how climate change is affecting people around the world. Um, I'll just take you through uh, uh, quickly through the example of the Russian heat wave of the kind of analysis we do uh, because it illustrates the sort of tools we use um, to address this kind of question. Whether, when a weather event happens, how can we say what the role of external drivers was in making that event either larger or more or less probable? Um, this is what happened in uh, 2010. We had what's called a blocking anticyclone. You can see the flow around this high-pressure system um, over uh, Western Russia. And that's the, the arrows show the flow of wind around that, and there's high pressure in the center there. And the temp surface temperatures rose to, um, on average, over the month of July, an average of six degrees above uh, normal for that uh, time of year. So that was the characteristics of the heat wave we were looking at. Um, there have been a couple of papers published already this year on the 2010 heat wave, 
interestingly reaching apparently diametrically opposite conclusions. So there's a paper by a group of American authors um, which report, concluded that um, the uh, heat wave was mainly due to natural internal atmospheric variability. And another paper by um, a couple of German uh, authors uh, which appeared more recently and said with an approximate 80% probability the heat wave would not have occurred um, without climate warming. Um, these were both very heavily reported papers. What was interesting was there was almost no overlap in who reported which paper, <laughs> as you might imagine. Um, but um, that sort of, as long as you have those kind of completely contradictory sounding statements appearing, you're left with a, a challenge as to what the, you know, where, where is the scientific community at on this. We've been working on this, um, Friedrich Otto uh, in, in, in my group has been working in particular on this problem to try, and, um, to try and disentangle what these authors had really found and see whether or not their conclusions were quite as contradictory as they first appear, or indeed as the authors appear to have thought. Um, this is what happened, um, July temperatures in Western Russia. Um, and. Uh, these are the observations, they're bouncing around, and um, this red curve here um, is uh, following a suggestion of uh, Geert Jan van Oldenburg in uh, KNMI in the Netherlands. Um, it's uh, a, an empirical way of seeing how much you can explain um, the, in a statistical sense, explain what's happened to central Russia temperatures in terms of what's happened to large-scale temperatures around the world. And you can see that this sort of explained estimate, explained component of the uh, uh, central Russia temperature involves a small warming, about a degree or so, but the anomaly that happened in 2010 was way bigger than that. Okay, so we had this big excursion on the, against the background of what you might, on the basis of this empirical analysis, think was a small warming trend. If you just take this data alone, the Russian data alone, and, and you just take the full century and fit a straight line to it, you don't see a warming trend. So, so you, 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 it does, the, the, the signal, I should stress, if all you do is look at the data, the signal is relatively weak and, and unconvincing. What we've been, and that's not particularly surprising, if you're looking at 100 years of data and at an event which might only happen once every hundred years, you're not going to see very many of them in order to be able to work out what's going on. So what we've been doing um, as, uh, uh, over the past year um, is as part of the sort of sequence experiment of experiments we've been doing under the climateprediction.net uh, initiative um, is simulating uh, the year 2010 uh, and indeed all of the years since 1960 um, with our weather models um, just to see simulating it many, many times to see how, in the models, the frequency of extreme events changes over time. Okay, So it's, in a sense, doing a little bit better than the real world because if we've got a model, we can actually run it many times, whereas the real world, we only got to run it once. So you can't, it's harder to tell um, if the statistics of extreme events are changing. Um, we're doing this using uh, th these, if you're trying to study changing statistics of rare events, you need to simulate the system so many times, we certainly can't afford to run it on our own computers. Um, and uh, with the support of Environment Guardian, uh, we're doing, the only way we can do this experiment is actually by recruiting our members of the public to do these runs for us. Um, and we're obviously grateful to the Guardian for supporting this. I'm happy to say Damien uh, Carrington is, is, is here this evening 
um, and has been uh, instrumental in, in helping um, get this experiment uh, off the ground. Um, uh, I should, of course, stress that in, uh, further back, uh, Climate Prediction Net also had a lot of support from the BBC when we were doing uh, longer-term uh, climate prediction experiments. Um, these, this is our laboratory. These are the people around the world who are doing these runs for us um, and continue to provide a, an extraordinary computing resource to uh, climate science. And if any of them are here in this room, in fact, I, I'm, I'm very much hoping that one of our um, heroic um, board moderators who keeps an eye on all the rest of the participants is here. So if, if Mo is here, thank you very much indeed for all your work. I nearly fell off the dice at that point. Okay, so this is just some evidence that the model's working, um, but in view of the time, can I ask you to take my word for it? Um, and, uh, but some evidence, more interesting evidence that the model's not working. Um, if we look here at the, sorry, um, the models, um, model simulated temperatures and observed temperatures over the same period in time, you'll notice we have many more models than observations, because we're, of course, able to run the model many, many times. And there's an obvious bias between them. Even though we haven't got that many observations, we can see the model's too warm. It's, 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 over, it's too, too far to the left, OK? That's typical for these kinds of models. And we have to, in this particular study, we can't do anything else but just correct that bias. What we would rather do, of course, is use a better model, which doesn't have that bias. And we're hoping, working with um, collaborators here and also at ECMWF, to move on from the relatively crude models we're using here to use the most sophisticated models available to redo this kind of analysis. But at this point, all we can do is correct for these biases and see what happens and use our models to assess how the risk of an extreme heat wave such as happened in 2010 in Russia has changed over the years. And what we find is quite an interesting um, it, it's, quite, it's an interesting conclusion because we can kind of say that both of these papers which appeared over this year are in a sense right. Um, it just depends on how you frame the question of how much of that event was um, anthropogenic or how much of it was externally driven versus how much was an internal fluctuation. Um, this plot shows the return time of monthly temperatures um, as simulated by the model after bias correction and so forth um, in the 1960s in green here and the 2000s in blue. Okay, so um, these are preliminary results, and you know there's still work to do to work out how uncertain we are in these curves. But they do serve to illustrate an important point: the heat wave was a big departure from average conditions whichever decade you were looking at, okay? So six degrees above normal, of which, so that's this big black arrow here, of which maybe only a degree was due to the background warming, okay? So on that way of thinking about the problem, the heat wave was indeed mostly natural, okay? So be careful now, watch, I'm not, this is the conjuring trick, okay? On the other hand, if we think in terms of the probability of the heat wave occurring, this was the magnitude of the heat wave itself, this threshold here. Um, in the 1960s, it would have been a one in a hundred year event, but by the 2000s, it was down to a one in 30 year event. So it had become three times more likely to occur. In terms of its probability of occurring in 2000, most of the risk of it occurring 
at the time it did was due to the external trend. So you got one event. If you think about it in terms of magnitude, it was mostly natural. If you think about it in terms of probability, it was mostly driven by the external forcing. Okay? Now that's not a convenient conclusion for a reporter to take away, um, but it's just the way it is. Okay? I don't know if anybody saw me attempting to explain this to Emily Maitland on Newsnight last week. <laughs> it did not go well. Um, although, actually, in self-defense, the dice, it was, it was my fault, not the dice's fault. The dice actually did a very good job. It was, the, it was, it was me fluffing my lines over what to say, because the dice did actually roll six more often than it should have done. But, okay, never mind. But she thought it should roll six every time. But that's, that's the problem we always face. People think if, if, if it's global warming, we should get a heat wave every summer. So anyway, never mind. Um, I guess that's a feature of Newsnight, isn't it? You always realize what you should have said as soon as the microphone goes off. Anyway, um, so, uh, but there we are. So, 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 so this, I've, I've got a little bit more time to explain this to you here. So that's, that's the situation we're in. Which is the question we're more interested in? The magnitude, how much has human influence increased the risk of a heat wave of a given magnitude? Um, so here's the sort of two ways of thinking about it. Um, uh, there's a sense in which it was mainly natural in terms of magnitude, or a sense in which it was mainly caused by the external trend, if you think in terms of occurrence probability. Okay? It's not really a scientific question which is the right way to think about it. I'm afraid, Sarah's nodding at this point, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that you know, us, we scientists tend to, tend to think that we know how to answer those kinds of questions, but we don't. It depends who's using the information, which, que which question they will, they will be most interested in. Um, we're able to do this using the weather at home um, approach, um, using these large ensemble simulations, to large numbers of different events. Um, and it's important to stress that as we're looking at the impact of uh, large-scale warming on events in different parts of the world, um, not all events are being made more likely. You often will get the, it's often said climate change is making the weather more extreme. I'm never quite sure what that means, um, but it, it's certainly not true that every kind of extreme weather event is being made more likely by, more likely by climate change. Um, here's two, um, the floods that occurred in Northam 2000, which we reckon were made, somewhat more likely as a result of um, uh, past greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and this is an interesting result from Alison Kay in CH Wallingford, um, where she looked at a, a flood that didn't happen in the spring of 2001. Okay, so this sound, does sound slightly academic, doesn't it? But it's an interesting question. We didn't have a flood in the spring of 2001, but we might have done and the risk of having one was substantially reduced by human influence on climate because why? In spring, the big floods that happen tend to result from accumulated snow melting fast. That doesn't happen anymore because we don't get those sorts of accumulations of snow. Okay? So this kind of flood, it wasn't completely academic. Of course, this kind of flood has happened in the past, back in 1947 and 1963, and those kinds of floods are becoming less likely. So um, when you're making a statement about human influence on flood risk in the UK, I'm always careful to sort of preface this with a sort of British Rail style, it's got to be the right kind of flood. Um, OK, so this is why we've argued we need this sort of work, probabilistic event attribution. 
Most present-day impacts of climate change are related to extreme weather, and quantifying how risks are changing does allow us to better quantify and indeed ensure against present-day risk. It allows us to build resilience um, and also to justify that adaptation funds are really spent on adaptation to climate change and not just building resilience to bad weather. Um, there's been some criticism of this idea, but I'm going to skip over that um, to the, um, just in view of the time, um, just to, to where it gets, it gets really interesting. Um, and this is, sort of tends to be the point where juices get going uh, in, in this debate. Um, and this is a quote, not from a scientific paper, but from a paper in the Columbia Journal of Environmental Law by David Grossman in 2003. And he pointed out that for lawyers, it is the um, contribution to risk way of thinking about the problem that matters, not the magnitude. And the threshold for lawyers getting interested in the possibility of liability is an increase in risk of roughly a factor of two. Now, um, of the events we've been talking about, the European heat wave in 2003 exceeds that threshold. The UK floods of autumn 2000 probably don't. So if you're thinking of suing an oil company for your house being devalued, you probably, well, you probably don't want to talk to me. Um, you, um, you'll have to find another expert witness for that one. Um, and we're still working on the 2010 heat wave. Um, what does this mean? Um, where, where might all this go? Um, at present, um, people have started raising the question of whether victims of climate change could secure compensation as a matter of legal right rather than simply because they're poor and they're entitled to some help. Um, and the main, the main obstacle in these cases, most of which have been filed in the states, of course, um, is the political, the political question. The point is there is a political process going on. The courts are therefore reluctant to get involved in assigning liability. But what if, and this is a, you know, what if that process in the next couple of weeks, for example, were to collapse completely? Um, and um, we were to um, sort of emerge from uh, Durban with a sort of politicians simply giving up and saying that they were just not going to, that they couldn't reach agreement. Um, as indeed, some people have wondered if this might happen um, uh, on, 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 on a number of occasions through the process so far. Um, the total cost, there lots of, you know, where, how far might liability extend? What sort of numbers are we talking about if fossil fuel producers, and this is where it's, it's good to have um, David Hearn from Shell on, on the panel to talk about this, if fossil fuel producers were actually be, to be held liable for the climatic consequences of, of the products they sell, how big might the bill become? What's interesting is the estimates that are available suggest a bill which is not that different from the size of carbon taxes people are talking about. So, it might not, in the end, it could wash out in a very similar way to an imposed carbon tax. But this is the kind of thing I would hope we will get talking about in the panel discussion. So I won't uh, dwell on that, uh, those, those numbers here. Um, a puzzle, though, which I might just want to leave you with, um, is that um, most environmentalists, I'm confident, would object strongly to the idea of resigning ourselves to a future where fossil fuel producers and, and those who benefit from the use of fossil fuels simply pay their way and compensate people who are adversely affected by climate change. And yet, so, so although environmentalists would, would typically say this would be a bad outcome, and yet ask yourself, 
which you think would have more impact on the share price of a major coal company. And remember, coal companies have on their books far more carbon than we can possibly afford to dump in the atmosphere if we're actually going to meet the targets the politicians say we're going to meet in avoiding dangerous climate change. If, if, an, if, if a, a deal was announced in Durban that we were actually going to set up a global cap-and-trade system, um, would that actually affect the share price of a major coal producer? My guess is it would not. The share price wouldn't even flicker. Because people know that the politicians will never have the bottle to actually see it through and keep that carbon underground. On the other hand, if Durban were to collapse completely and it to be announced that as of now, anyone handling fossil fuels was fully liable for all the consequences um, that they have on the climate for the indefinite future, that actually might make a bit more of an impact on share prices. And that suggests we're revealing what we really believe about both the capability of the political process to deliver as it's going at the moment and the potential of private sector um, remedies um, to have more impact in the future. The, real, the reason that, for this asymmetry is the point that under the second scenario, it's those who benefit from the production and use of fossil fuels today that bear the risk of climate change turning out to be worse than currently expected. So as of next week, um, the world's attention on this issue will be focused on Durban and gathering of uh, scientists and politicians there to discuss um, how they're going to negotiate their way out of climate change. What many fewer people will know is that another event happens on Monday, which is oral testimony begins in the case of Kivalina versus ExxonMobil, um, Kivalina being an Arctic village um, that is suing ExxonMobil uh, for the products ExxonMobil sells, causing global warming um, and resulting in um, the village essentially sliding into the sea. Um, I have no idea what the outcome of Kivalina versus ExxonMobil will be, but I suggest to you that the Ninth Circuit Court in California is where our attention should be focused next week and not the intergovernmental negotiations in Durban. Thank you.